Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. So I'd like to welcome, as the very first guest, Steve Canueto, my business partner. Who better to ask than someone who's had a long and illustrious career, well, at least until he met me in the music industry, and uh, also is someone who I know very well and I know has got some great stuff to share with you. So welcome, Steve. Uh, it's good to be here, mate. This feels quite strange. Obviously, we talk to each other pretty much every day in a work capacity, and now I'm on the podcast. This is exciting. So I think a good place to start, which is where I'm intending to start with every guest, is I want you to think back as far as you can. It might be memories that your family or parents have reminded you of, but of a time very early in your life when music suddenly became important. It could be a moment on the dance floor, kiddie dance floor maybe, or under 11's disco, or I don't know, but a moment where you thought, wow, music did one jump into mind? Have you got more than one? Yeah, I have got more than one, actually. I think one is, one is um, related to seeing what music could do to people. And then another one is related to like when, music, when, I, when I really latched on to the music that meant something to me. Wow, um, I, think we, I think we need to hear both of them. Yeah, so the first one was, um, was like, I, I uh, had a lot of music in the household when I grew up. I grew up with my mum, single parent family, and she was, she was into music. She was into quite poppy stuff, so like um, Queen and ABBA and um, a bit of country like Tammy Wynette and Wham and, you know, pretty, pretty poppy stuff. But there was always music around, and she, um, she really liked her music. And um, my first... So I kind of, to me, you know, having music around and, you know, having a bit of a sing and a dance and enjoying music was sort of, I just understood that as being part of what we do as human beings. But um, my first experience of kind of seeing the power of music with other people, other than sort of my own family, was, um, was actually at a family wedding. And I guess I must have been around 11 or 12. And um, there was a family wedding. There was a mobile DJ there with the, you know, the, the, the full set up. And I was intrigued by what he was doing and was kind of like, you know, making a nuisance of myself being around behind the uh, the turntables and the old foul lights, if anyone remembers that brand. Um, and uh, I was kind of just going through his records and what he was DJing, he was playing music, but no one was dancing. And I knew everybody there. It was all my family and an extended family. And of course, my my mum and her sisters and uh he, no one was dancing and I was like looking through the records and I was like um why don't you play this or why don't you play this and uh he actually got irritated with me and said well if you know so much you put something on so and I'm not proud to admit this but this was the moment I put on Dancing Queen by ABBA <laughs> and uh because I knew that my mum and all her friends and family would love it and 
I put it on and they all hit the dance floor and the dance floor was full. So I was just like, and I, I will always, always, always remember that moment because it was like, it was just so cool. It's like, I knew what they wanted. I put it on and they danced. And I think that was the trigger, do you know what I mean? In terms of me wanting to replicate that as much as I could in the rest of my life. But obviously I wasn't going to be an ABBA DJ. I don't think that was what was set out for me. So, so that was the, that was the dance floor moment, if you like. But then it would have been a year or so later, maybe a couple of years later, probably 1983, 1984. I, I grew up in a, in a town which was about 40 miles outside of London, pretty provincial, pretty cut off, um, pretty ordinary middle of the road in terms of people's music tastes. But I could just about pick up the reception of a, of a radio station called Capital FM, which was broadcast in the greater London area. And it just about reached where I lived. And um, at night, one night when I was just basically going through the radio dial, I latched onto Capital FM and just heard this music, which just blew my mind. I couldn't tell you exactly what track it was, but it was basically, it was hip hop. And um, it was early hip hop in terms of what we knew in the UK. You know, hip hop and rap had been around for a few years in the US, but it was stuff like um, Mantronics and Aleem, Release Yourself and the B-Boys, 2-3 Break, uh, Fresh 3 MCs, Fresh, just this like amazing, electronic drum drum driven uh rhythm driven music with rapping over the top of it and it to me this just sounded like the future so that was that was the moment where i was like what is this music i want to consume as much of it as i can i want to understand everything about it and that started the journey and i was listening to that radio show religiously every week it was a guy called mike allen and the show was called his frontline chart and he would run down the chart of the biggest hip-hop tracks it was late at night i think on friday nights you know, buried, uh, buried late in the capital schedule. But that for me was like, this, this is the music I love. This is what I want to do. Um, and it started from there. Just thinking back to when you were first tuning in, I think this is quite a common story. I certainly have a very similar story about the radio late at night, kind of discovering a world that's outside of everything, you know, I think that's part of the attraction. Mm. What was it that particularly blew your mind about hearing those early hip hop tracks? What were you thinking? Did you want to go where they came from? Did you, you know, what was, what was it about them that, that grabbed you? Well, I suppose it was that I'd never heard anything like this before. You know, there was electronic music in, in the charts, but it was very, very polished. And, um, you know, it was, it was pop music. It was everywhere, but this just, it was, it, it felt like it, well, it was underground. It felt like there's only, you know, this is like some kind of secret club that not many people know about. And it was very raw. And um, I really loved break beats and drum machines. And it was much more, for me, music, is, all the music that I love is much more because of the drums and the rhythm than it is about the melody and the lyric. That's just always been the thing that attracts me to music. And so hip hop was like, that's what it was all about. It was all about the breaks, all about the beats. Um, and so it was like, I've never heard anything like this before in my life. My mum and her friends don't play this. My friends at school don't listen to this. Um, I think that was the attraction. I, 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 th I think, you know, the town that I was in was very much like everyone's the same. The high streets, you know, all the high streets are the same in the UK. Everyone's doing the same thing. Everyone's on the same path. But I think it was that moment where I realised that actually I don't want to follow the path of everyone else in my town. And yeah, I did want to be a part of it. So this DJ, Mike Allen, was running down this chart every week. And the chart was compiled by a shop, a record store called Groove Records in Soho. 
And so he would be saying, you know, courtesy of Groove Records in Soho. And, and, you know, there was no internet back then. I didn't know anything about this place, but I was hearing about this mythical record shop every week. And it just, and, and so my, it became my mission to actually travel to London, which I'd never done before on my own and find this shop. And when I first walked in there, it was like, I always remember that moment as well. It's like, I'm, I'm here. I'm at the center of hip hop <laughs> as it was to me. Yeah. So I think that was the thing. It was a bit of an escape from the humdrum boredom of the town that I was in. Okay. So tell us what have you been doing from that moment to now? So always being involved in the, in the music industry in some way or another, whether it was playing music to people uh, or compiling music uh, for people to enjoy, either in DJ sets or in compilation albums, or teaching people what I've learned about DJing and, and music over the years. So there's always been a connection to, music has always been at the center of everything, but I've been more in the music business than I was uh, as, a, as a DJ, but it, was, it always had music curation, curation at the center of it. Tell us your biggest achievement in the music business. I worked for 10 years at um, Ministry of Sound, uh, working in their compilations department, which I started as a junior, but I, I actually ran that entire division for the last kind of five years that I was there. And during that time, we conceptualized and released a lot of compilation albums. And it was a very, very creative time. And what we were doing was we were, th- you know, we were basically putting together collections, which I would always deem them to be sets, if you like, you know, DJ sets of of music that they worked together as a collection and we could present them to people and they would and they would love it and there was a lot of things that I'm proud of during that during that time I'll go with a sort of one that I'm proud of from a more underground point of view which was um, a compilation album called the future sound of the UK which was a small series with Derek Delage and Bentley Rhythm Ace and the Freestylers it was all around the break scene in kind of late uh, late 90s those albums are seminal and they're still my calling card when I meet people and sort of say oh I, I that was my label and they go really um so something that's something I'm very proud of from an underground point of view you know those never sold more than 5,000 copies each um, but from a kind of cultural shift point of view I think uh conceptualizing and releasing the chill out session album for Ministry of Sound which was you know it was as it was as it's described it was like a coffee table album it was laid back house and blissful beats was the was the tagline um, my good friend Alex McNutt and I worked for months compiling and working on this no one at Ministry of Sound thought that it was going to do anything they thought they'd look just let us get on with it and have fun with our little folly and um, it sold 600,000 copies which is double platinum in the UK and uh, and really sort of started a culture you know just basically opened everyone's eyes to the fact that actually sort of you know chill out was a thing and then it sort of sparked off you know every single record company in the world releasing chill out albums pretty constantly for the next 10 years so the reason i asked that question is you ended up at ministry sound a lot of people listening to this will know your history with digital dj tips as both our, our scratch tutor and also a partner in the business so you've clearly spent many successful decades now in the music industry but here you are as a a kid with a crackly radio signal coming out of London and knowing you wanted to get into this music you you finally kind of had your first naive trip if you like to just another record store uh, in town what happened next how do you go from that kid to uh, I'm going to assume getting your your first proper job which I'm 
going to assume is, is kind of getting your foot in the door at the Ministry of Sound. What was that route? Uh, it took a few years. So basically, I, you know, as soon as I'd been to London, I, I knew that I knew that that I just felt that that was where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in the centre of where it was all happening. And um, as my mission, even as a sort of 14 or 15 year old kid was as soon as I can get there, I, I will. Uh, and then I was not um, I was kind of 16 coming up 17 when um, some friends of mine was going up to a club in London. Um, so I was still into hip hop at this time and kind of playing, you know, a couple of local parties near where I lived. I was working um, just as a trainee electronics engineer in a local factory near where I lived um, and doing kind of temporary work, not really with a plan. Um, and uh, my friends were going out to this club called Club MFI uh, at Legends in, in the West End of London every Friday night. And basically one, one Friday I said, I'm going to come with you guys if, you, if you'll let me. And I went and that was when I first heard house music it was basically a kind of uh, a rave club and uh i just felt i belonged i was like not only i just wanted to be in london wanted to be part of that scene something exciting was happening so me and my girlfriend at the time who was two years older than me i was 16 she was 18 moved to london uh and i didn't really have a plan that was it um and initially it was me and my buddy we we started djing we djed at um at the mud club um at the wag club you know some really famous clubs around that time I used to play sort of hip-hop sets in the back room and he was uh he was more of a house DJ and um basically that was it we were kind of just <laughs> making money where we could DJing and just in, in you know involving ourselves in the scene as much as we could but there wasn't much money around so I kind of realized quite quickly that um and also it wasn't superstar DJ money around that time either you know it was it was quite you know you had to do five or six gigs a week to be able to kind of make it pay as a DJ around that time. And um, uh, I realized that I kind of needed to get a proper job, but again, was looking in the areas of music. So actually my first job was in music, in record distribution companies. So in the UK, there were companies well, all over the world that basically import music from other parts of the world and then distribute that music to the record stores. And I started doing that. I was basically the guy that was on the phone deciding what we were going to be importing from, from Belgium and from, from Holland and from the US. And um, did that and then I was like then I went out on the road and I was one of these kind of record store van van guys uh in Soho in the West End um and so again you know I for me it was all about being as close as possible to the most upfront music that was out there so I was I was working for companies that were involved in doing that in bring in distributing and promoting um you know dance music and did that for a few years then um I met this um uh, really eccentric but amazing guy called Sankey Yo, who was uh, he was a Korean-born Japanese man with a Jamaican accent. <laughs> <laughs> but he ran a, a small label called Freetown Records, who at the time were working with Masters at Work and Kerry Chandler uh, and DJ Pierre, and these were kind of my house music heroes. And he offered me the job of uh, running his label, which I did for two years. And then after doing that for two years, I successfully applied for the job at Ministry of Sound. So. I didn't really have a plan. I was going I was going from job to job to job, but it was always through the connections that I made by just planting myself firmly in the middle of the rave scene in London. You said that you were always going to be close to the best, latest, hottest new music. Do you think that drive in those early years of your career came from those days or nights listening to the radio 
hearing that music and wanting to get closer to it? Was it that same drive that was getting you involved in record labels and getting you involved in bringing the new sounds into the country and so on? Yeah, I think so. I think um, it was, I just really connected with this, with the music, um, but with, it was always about newness, like what what's new, what's the hottest new track? And of course, for, for DJs at that time who, who were uh, in that, in the rave scene, it was about, it was about breaking the big new tracks. Um, so it was, you know, we were always seeking out the hottest white labels and the hottest imports. I remember queuing around the block at Jazzy M's uh, Vinyl Zone store in Fulham to, to get one of the few copies that had come into the country of CC Rogers someday, you know, that, that I'd been coveting getting hold of that record for ages. So I was a real sort of nerd, music nerd, collector, um, but wanting the latest stuff uh, and very good at curating and, and knowing what was good and what wasn't, which I think definitely when I was at Ministry of Sound and compiling albums, the ability to listen to 30 seconds of a track and make a very quick distinction in my mind, whether it's quality or not, um, is something that I just always had. Um, but yeah, for, for sure, that, that, um, the fact that I could talk uh, with authority and with knowledge to any, anyone in, in the industry about any music that was out there and the producers behind it and the label that it was on and what remixes there were and that kind of stuff because I was such a nerd. So, okay, let's jump forward back again to this, um, the company you were to stick with for a long time, London's Ministry of Sound. Mm. And I want to talk a bit more about compiling albums. Yeah. Um, because to me, there is a big, big overlap between compiling albums and programming a DJ set, right? Mm. Did being a DJ help you to do that, to compile albums? Um, did working with other DJs show you that actually there's more to compiling albums than just being a DJ and actually you realise that it's an art form in itself. What did you learn about that job that maybe won't be obvious to, to someone who hasn't done it? Yeah, so it there, it was definitely a, pr- a progression in that role. When I first joined Ministry of Sound in 1995, um, part of the reason that attracted me to that club, and, and just to just to fill in a little bit of a gap, I was I went to the opening night of that club in 1991. I was a clubber there every single week you know I loved it I loved all the DJs especially the US house DJs um, you know I saw Larry LeVan play there and stuff like that so to me Ministry of Sound was a, a the bastion of underground music and they had a series of albums called the Sessions albums um, and it was uh, you know Todd Terry David Morales uh, Paul Oakenfold did one actually and CJ McIntosh uh, Eric Murillo they were kind of your underground house DJs at the time uh, I was attracted to work there because I was into underground music and cool music and I had the chance to work on these albums. Um, the day that I joined, uh, so we'll talk about compiling in a set, but the day that I joined was also the day that Ministry of Sound released its first ever TV advertised compilation album called The Annual One. Uh, and that basically sold four or five times the amount of copies that they'd ever sold on any of these other albums. And it was very commercial. It was Pete Tong and Boy George, which musically was very different at that time and not necessarily what I was into. So to me, I, was, I um, felt that in terms of, uh, and I wasn't taken on as a compiler to begin with. That's something that I grew into. I was kind of working in production and doing the label copy and the graphic uh, and you know, liaising with the graphic designers and the production companies and getting them manufactured and into the stores and that kind of stuff. Um, but um, 
those albums that were non-TV advertised, you could compile those like a DJ set. You know, the very first Ministry of Sound Sessions album was by Tony Humphreys, and it broke ground around the same time that the Renaissance albums in the north of England broke ground, because what they were doing was basically bringing on CD and vinyl, um, you know, pretty much the tracks that a DJ would be playing in the club in the order that they played them in the club, representing a DJ set in the club. And there were a certain, you know, and, and people lapped that up. They loved it because they were basically being able to buy effectively entry to this club, even though they may never have been there. Um, so those albums were quite easy to, to compile because they're, you know, basically it was, it was up to the DJ as to how they wanted the order that they wanted to put them in. Um, and anything that is non-TV advertised that is positioned as a more underground album, um, you can do that, you know, creatively, you can, um, you can have it as musically true to your uh, underground roots or, or uh, as you want. When you start advertising things on TV and you're fighting for space in the major stores uh, and you're, you know, you're spending huge amounts of money on TV advertising, it becomes a different thing. It becomes a much more of a commercially driven programming mission, if you like. So maybe the difference is, the difference is sort of being an underground club DJ where you've got a crowd who are basically in your hand and they're pretty much going to be into it no matter what you do versus being a DJ in a, in a um, uh, very, very commercial bar where if you play even one track that people don't know, they're going to be like looking at you strangely. That's how I'd describe the difference between underground albums and TV advertised albums. So I had to learn really, and I struggled with it to put my underground sensibilities to one side and think commercially. Yeah. Mixed albums kind of, as you say, were selling millions back in the 90s. But now we're in a very different time with playlists and mm. you know, you're only as good as the last 60 seconds of music kind of thing. People can skip around. Uh, have mixed albums had their day? Is it something that's passed? Is it something that will kind of always be there? What's your view as someone who doesn't work in it anymore but has um, of kind of the mixed album in, in 2018? Uh, well... Mix albums in terms of a recording of a, of a DJ's set where it's all blended and mixed um, have gone very, very underground again. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a, it's a much smaller niche of people who are interested in, in finding those. And, of course, DJ mixes are now available on SoundCloud and on MixCloud uh, in other you know, on YouTube and in other places where people are able to consume them. So that market is very, very small and very niche. There is still a huge value in um, the in trust in who is compiling it and who is choosing the music. So Ministry of Sound as a brand, even though the whole music business model has changed, um, they are still a trusted brand for compiling the best dance music that's out there to the point where they've done a deal with Apple Music to be the exclusive you know, playlist curator of the dance collections on Apple Music. So it's changing. So, that, but that, so what I'm saying is, is that people still want somebody else to put together all the best tunes, somebody that they trust, um, so that they can listen to it and and trust that that these tunes are good because that person or that brand put them together. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Because it's kind of full circle when you've got Ministry of Sound doing playlists, which are always talked of as the replacement for the mix album, curated playlists. And also it's quite interesting that it turns out after 10, 20, year, 20 years of this kind of thing, it's actually the music and the order the music's in that has endured and the mixing part of it, yeah, it's, it's kind of there for some people, mm. but it's trusting the 
the tracks in the first place and someone with half a half a mind of sticking them together in the right order. Yeah. All right. So all the way through this, you're also DJing. You got into this through DJing. Yeah. Tell me about your most amazing music or DJing event that you were part of. Uh, full stop. Well, DJing at Ministry of Sound was like we're, we're were my highlights um even though I worked there I, it didn't just give me a pass to be able to play there as often as I wanted but actually just from talking to you now and kind of thinking back to the early days you know not many people will have will know about the club called Shum but it was a famous club in London in in 87 88 89 run by Danny Rampling who of course went on to be one of the uh, most well-known house DJs in the world and I played the second room at Shum where Mark Moore and Danny Rampling were playing in the, in the main room. And I played a, a hip hop set and, and thinking about it now in this conversation, it's just brought back so many great memories. I think that was, even though it was one of the early DJ sets, I think that that was the one that I just loved the most. And to have been part of that, that club and that movement at that time, bearing in mind, I was 16. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, something, uh, it's one of those names that's in house music history that's never going to be erased and to be yep. able to see you a part of that and I'll, really... remember, I'll always remember playing Jennifer Taught Me by Della Soul and watching the crowd watching the crowd go wild to that and uh, yeah there's moments like that will just never leave you I'd like to just recall to the two or three years when you weren't in this game at all and in fact you'd made a decision to just leave it behind mm. you know um, not to get too spiritual on you here but um you know, I kind of uh, bought into this law, law of attraction stuff and where you can kind of visualize and set out a future for yourself, even though it may not be true for you in that day. And during those times when I was working in real estate, I wrote, you know, thought about it and wrote down and kind of put it out to the universe, if you like, that I want to be, I want to have a life where I'm working from home, helping people, you know, able to earn a living and still involved in, in music and, and, and DJing in some way or another. And all that, that was something that I wrote down on a piece of paper before I even met you. And I still have it in my wallet. <laughs> and, uh, and that life effectively came around. Uh, so, you know, it's all a bit, it's all a bit deep and deep and spiritual, but I, it was, it was part of the process. I, I just want to share that uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast, and of course, this is the first episode, so I can say this stuff early on, is I felt I would learn as much myself about the people I was interviewing as the audience would learn about them. Uh, and so it'd be almost selfish for me as well. But I didn't expect to learn something about someone I've spent the best part of a decade working with, that you have this piece of paper that prophetically describes the life that you've now managed to get. So there we go. Yeah. I've learned something. Maybe you'll have to show it to me one day. I will do, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So back to music and back to the music industry. What if if someone could have told you one thing about the music industry and about what you've ended up doing uh, back the day that you left to go to London? If someone could have said, "Hey, Steve, uh, just bear this in mind," can you think of something that would have been useful for you to know? Well, so I, I, I it would be related to um, where the money is in the music business. Okay, um, and it kind of. This is obviously if if your drive is that you want to be financially successful, um, you need to learn. Very, I wish I'd have learned earlier on that all of the, all of the money in the world is above ground, apart from the stuff that the pirates buried. Um, <laughs> you know, and so there isn't much money in being underground and trendy and cool. 
there's a very, very small amount of people who can basically never compromise in their in what they want to do creatively and be able to earn, earn good money from music. Most of the um, money that's made in the music industry is through through you know basically um, selling to a wider audience, which is being more commercial. So if you're looking to get wealthy in the music industry, um, uh, you, you yeah, uh, letting go of those kind of underground. Um, uh, trying to find the word, now. yeah. So sort of, you have to allow yourself to be more commercial, and and uh, you know, in order to make make a lot of money, I would say. Is there a sweet spot between doing what you want and being, you know, the person who knows that the ABBA record is the only one that's going to work? I suppose it depends on what part of the music industry you wanna you wanna be in. If you want to be, uh, if you want to have a, a record label, um, then I suppose you just got to know whether you've got a big enough audience uh, for what it is that you've got to say musically. There probably is a sweet spot, but I think that you know a lot of producers, a lot of producers will um, you know produce stuff where they're, which is not necessarily stuff that they're into, where they can make the money on, in order to provide them with the, with the time and the lifestyle to be able to make music that they love. So have this kind of double life, if you like, yeah, going on. I don't think that's uncommon. Yeah, no, I mean, it's common in, in both. The obvious example, I guess, is mobile DJs who have a company and then they DJ on the side doing what they love. Yeah. But also, actually, in the music industry, just off the top of my head, you've got Roger Sanchez with his S-Man underground persona, haven't you? And yeah. uh, Eric Prids has got Series D, I think. He's more kind of techno side side show to his big commercial tracks so yeah i guess uh so people do grapple with this don't they they do grapple with the underground overground bit yeah yeah as a, a friend of mine uh luke solomon actually who's um a really you know very uh credible um long-standing underground house dj in the uk actually works at defected records now um but he had a record um he had an artist uh, persona called freaks and uh, I'm trying to remember the um, name of the track uh, that he had. I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but basically it, it blew up. It turned into a huge hit, much to his surprise. And he really didn't like it. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't like the fact that he was asked, being asked to go on kind of kids' TV programs and stuff like that. But the, but the thing that he wrestled with was that it made so much money. You yeah. Know, it, made so much, it, it made more money for him than probably any other thing that he'll ever work on in his life did but he didn't enjoy one minute of that whole process. So he's decided he's not going to chase after that again. He's not looking to make another hit. He's decided yeah. that actually, you know, it's not about money. It's about staying true to what he what he loves. Probably an easy decision to make once you've made that one hit and the money's in the bank. Though, I guess. <laughs> yeah, much easier. Yeah, for sure. Steve, thank you for your time this hour. I want you to just share with the audience if people have liked what they've heard and uh and want to kind of uh, you know get closer to you what uh, what it is you do at digital dj tips and how they could potentially have you as a tutor uh so um i help phil my uh host on this podcast uh, run digital dj tips overall as a business we kind of uh we, we head it up together but um i'm actually the tutor for the scratching for controller djs course uh, which is how we first started working with each other and uh it's a completely extensive course teaching you how you can learn to scratch on any on any DJ gear, but but mainly on DJ controllers, and um, it's uh, yeah, I've had thousands of students come through it, and I I, I love helping people, um, and um, 
yeah, so that's that's the that's the main thing that, that I do in terms of in terms of teaching. So students who want to get involved with learning the kind of things you learned, uh, hopefully not on turntables they have to hack together from yeah. secondhand shops, uh, can do so by heading over to the Digital DJ Tips website and the courses area, and you can see Steve's scratch training in there. Whatever it happens to be called when you're listening to this, it does change. We do change things up every now and then. Steve, thank you ever so much for your time today. This has been the Tales from the Dance Floor podcast from Digital DJ Tips. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, Steve. Thank you.